Thank you, Claire and the worship team. And thank you, George, for leading our service. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we want this service to be about you and your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to make it that. Father, thank you for the opportunity to bring our needs, our challenges, and our opportunities before you, both personal and corporate. We are a needy people, and we acknowledge how dependent we are on you. The COVID situation has been much in the news lately. We pray that your people would be wise in their choices and not surrender to fear. Thank you that the virus has had a relatively small impact on our church family. And we ask for continued protection for ourselves and for the rest of the country. We thank you for the good week our children enjoyed at Camp Quaker Haven. May the discipling that they received and the spiritual decisions they made impact their lives positively as they prepare to return to school in a couple of weeks. As the school year begins, our own church programs will be ramping up. And so we ask that you would prepare the teachers and leaders of our children's classes, adult classes, midweek Bible studies, and other efforts to spread the good news and bring our people to maturity. We pray for our sister churches this morning, for Pastor Dominic as he preaches at the bridge, for Abdel and Flavio at our Hispanic churches, for Daniel as he preaches right now at our Chinese church, for Ken at West Church, Todd at Grace First. We also pray for the ministry of Pastor Stan at Eastminster, for Darren at Central Christian, for Nick at Hope Church, and for Brent at First Mennonite Brethren. Empower all these servants to preach the gospel with power and bless these churches and all other churches that honor Christ in your word with growth and maturity and unity. We're grateful for our ministry partners around the world. Today we think particularly of international students. Thank you for Rod Bevan, for Randall Harms, and Claire Drevitz as they lead the local ministry. We ask that a number of our people will join the table and talk groups that are designed to welcome international students into our homes for conversation that will introduce them to God's amazing story of redemption. We also pray for the great giveaway later this month that enables so many international students to obtain the basics that they need. May they sense the love of Christ from our church family. Now as we return our attention to your word, we ask for minds that are attentive and hearts that are open to receive all the truth you have for us today through your holy word. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It was 10 years ago today, August the 1st, 2011, that uh, I retired as lead pastor here at First Free, which means that it's also 10 years ago today that Pastor Josh began his ministry among us. He is still on study leave, but I would encourage you to consider sending a note of encouragement to Josh for his good ministry this past decade. The opening paragraph of our scripture text today, Matthew 15, 
introduces us to a very relevant topic, that of hand-washing. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. When I last preached on this text some 13 years ago, I opened the sermon with the following observation. It's flu season, and people are paying a lot of attention to hand washing. I googled the topic, the importance of hand washing, and found 400,000 entries. Well, just for fun, I googled again yesterday, and there were 6,890,000,000 entries. I even took a screenshot of it. Well, after carefully examining each of those entries, <laughs> I came to the conclusion that hand washing is an absolute obsession in our culture and society. The CDC, that eminent protector of public health, which has gained the confidence of all Americans lately, has puts this on their website. Follow these five steps every time. Wet your hands with clean running water, warm or cold. Turn off the tap and apply soap. Lather your hands by rubbing them together with the soap. Lather the backs of your hands between your fingers and under your nails. Scrub your hands for at least 20 seconds. Need a timer? Hum the happy birthday song from beginning to end twice and so forth. In case you're worried you might be humming too fast, uh, you can now purchase a hand-washing timer that sticks right to your sink. It's called Wash Clock, and it's available for $19.95, plus shipping and handling. (laughs) And you can get 50% off if you buy a set of 12, which I suppose is good for people who have 12 sinks in their house. The ad says, for Wash Clock that is, it lasts up to 7,000 hand washes. You'll probably replace your sink before you need to replace the battery. And if you're my age, you have even less concern about the battery running out. However, believe it or not, today's hygiene police are rank amateurs compared to the Pharisees in the New Testament. Alfred Edersheim, in his classic book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, spends four pages just describing the washing rules and regulations of first century Pharisees. Water jars were available at every meal. The minimum amount of water that could be used was one and a half eggshells worth. The water was first poured on both hands with the fingers pointed upward and the water had to run down to the wrist and then on the ground because the water was now unclean. The process was repeated with both hands pointed downwards and each hand was cleansed by rubbing with the fist of the other and there were other regulations as well. A strict Jew would do this before every meal and between each course in every meal. The value of hand washing was held so high that one rabbi insisted that whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with washed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain 
eternal life. And another rabbi who was imprisoned and was given a small ration of water used that water to wash his hands instead of drinking it because he said he would rather die of thirst than to transgress this tradition. Now believe it or not, the Jewish practice of hand washing had nothing to do with good hygiene. It was not germs that they feared, but Gentiles, or anything a Gentile had touched, or any kind of food that was not kosher. Now with that as an introduction to our topic today, I would ask if you are able to stand so we read our scripture from Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. It's on page 820 of the Pew Bible. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage opens with a time connective. It says, Then... We don't know how much time has passed since the feeding of the 5,000 that Jordan so well presented to us last week or the slew of miracles that occurred at the very end of chapter 14. But news of these events had clearly made their way back to the, the news had made its way back to Jerusalem. The religious leaders of Israel didn't normally pay much attention to what happened in a backwater area like Galilee kind of like flyover country, but they decide that an official challenge must be made 
to Jesus before his popularity would get out of hand up there in Galilee and spread south to Jerusalem. And so a delegation of ecclesiastical heavyweights is sent from Jerusalem north. These visiting religious leaders come to Jesus and ask a question. They're not looking for information. They're making an accusation. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Their charge is leveled against Jesus' disciples, not against Jesus himself. But that's irrelevant. Since they are his disciples, he is viewed as responsible for their behavior. In fact, as their teacher, he is considered even more guilty than they. The failure to follow the prescribed hand-washing rules was viewed as no minor offense in Judaism. Because the traditions of the elders were viewed as the authoritative interpretation of the Mosaic law. These time-tested and universally accepted principles were actually written down in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were considered official uh, commentaries on the Old Testament. Now, the fact that the religious leaders accused Jesus and his disciples of violating their traditions and not the scriptures themselves doesn't seem to embarrass them at all because they actually considered their traditions to be equal to, sometimes even superior to, the Scripture. Their reasoning is not unlike those today who claim with one breath that the Bible is authoritative and yet also hold that the church or some ecclesiastical authority has the only infallible interpretation of the Bible. It's easy for us to spot this problem in Mormonism or Roman Catholicism because they readily admit to accepting a dual religious authority, the Bible and the church. Take Rome's celibacy of the priesthood, for example. Celibacy is a good thing. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 7. But there is no hint in Scripture that celibacy is required for clergy thankfully. Yet the celibacy of the priesthood is such a strong tradition in the Catholic Church that they continue to hold to it, even though it causes a tremendous shortage of priests and undoubtedly contributes significantly to the sexual scandals that have overwhelmed the church. Aren't you glad that we evangelicals don't have any traditions that we hold to above the scriptures or do we I wonder if sometimes though we claim that the Bible alone is our authority that we don't cheat a little some of you know the name of Marvin Rosenthal Dr. Rosenthal was the founder of a ministry called Friends of Israel and the founding editor of a great magazine called Israel My Glory He's a godly man, a fine biblical scholar, and a great evangelist. A little over 30 years ago, Dr. Rosenthal, through his careful study of the Scripture, decided that the church is probably going to go through most of the tribulation. 
And he wrote a book to that effect called The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. But he soon discovered that he was messing with the traditions of the elders big time. You see, for much of the 20th century, American evangelicalism largely held the view that the church would be secretly raptured before the Great Tribulation. Many here in this audience have held that view. Many still do. Uh, Having been influenced by the Schofield Bible, by Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, by Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, and so forth. As with many ideas we grew up with, if they are never seriously challenged, we tend to treat them as absolute truth. But the Bible is simply not that clear on the time of the rapture of the church. And that should be obviously obvious when we see godly evangelical scholars who have widely different views on the subject. Our pastors and theologians don't differ on the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or the resurrection, but they do on the time of the rapture. And it seems to me that that should be at least a hint to us that the rapture might fall into the category of a tradition of the elders rather than an explicit teaching of the Bible. Please understand that by calling it a tradition of the elders, I'm not suggesting it is necessarily wrong, but traditions should not be held with the same dogmatism that we attach to absolute truth. And we should probably not break fellowship with others over our traditions. But that's exactly what happened to Dr. Rosenthal. Though he was the founder of Friends of Israel, the board fired him because he questioned the pre-trib rapture. He was canceled even before cancel culture. I personally see little difference between what that board did to Dr. Rosenthal and what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus in our passage today. Whenever our cherished views become more important to us than the clear teaching of Scripture, the church is in trouble. Another example may bring this issue even a little closer to home. For generations, there was a tradition of the elders in the evangelical church that remarriage, excuse me, that uh, intermarriage is probably not wise and may even be immoral, especially between blacks and whites. I was pastoring here 40 years ago this summer we were looking for a summer intern. Our own seminary didn't have anyone available. Uh, but uh, a student from Dallas Seminary heard about the vacancy and applied. I brought Carlton Harris's resume to the elders, and they were very pleased with it. Even when I told them he was black, that was not a problem. They thought, boy, this predominantly white church would do well to have a black intern. But then I told them that he was married to a blonde, white, Mennonite girl uh, that he had met at Dallas Bible College. The enthusiasm waned a bit at that point. But Carl Johnson, our elder chair at the time, wisely suggested that we all go home and study the scripture for a week on the topic and then come back and make a decision. So that week we all did that. When the elders regathered, 
every one of them said they could find nothing in the Bible that speaks against racial intermarriage, just intermarriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So we proceeded. We called Carlton Harris. He joined our staff that summer. A couple of families left the church, but Carlton did a great job. The church prospered, and we were able to launch him on a very effective pastoral ministry career, just recently completed at a large Baptist church in San Diego. By the way, a month ago, the Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination, announced that Carlton Harris has been selected as the new Executive Vice President of National Ministries for the Free Church, the second highest position in our denomination. Sometimes traditions are positive. Sometimes they are neutral. Sometimes they are harmful. But they should never be considered as authoritative as is the Word of God. I encourage us to examine our viewpoints, our actions, even our own church traditions, to consider whether they are really grounded in the Word of God. Now, instead of defending his disciples against this accusation that the Pharisees have made, which we might have expected Jesus to do, instead, he turns the tables on them with a much more serious charge. He asks, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Friends, this isn't mere whataboutism. Jesus isn't saying, okay, my disciples have screwed up, but what about you? There's no moral equivalence between the actions of the Pharisees and, and the, the actions of his disciples. Jesus is saying, you accuse me and my disciples of breaking your traditions, but you are breaking the commandments of God in order to preserve your traditions. To justify this accusation, Jesus quotes one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and your mother. So serious is a violation of this commandment that God attaches the death penalty to it. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's what God says. Um, what do the traditions of the elders say? Verse 5. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. What's, what's going on here? Well, one of the traditions of the elders was that a person could dedicate all of his possessions to the temple to be paid upon his death by designating them as korban, C-O-R-B-A-N. That term is actually used in Mark's parallel account of this event. The term means given to God, dedicated to God. It's a term for a faith promise. Um, funds or property so designated could not be transferred to anyone else, not even to one's parents. Though, of course, the individual could use it as long as he was alive. 
This tradition of Korban could be used as a sign of generous spirit, but more often than not, it was used to avoid family responsibility, and that was evil. It was actually false piety which nullified the commandment of God. Jesus then turns from criticizing the Pharisees' actions to denouncing their character. He says, you hypocrites. Jesus always seemed to reserve his most blistering condemnation for those who practiced hypocrisy, for pretending to be something they were not. You know the origin of the term hypocrite? comes from two Greek words, hupo, krino. It means to speak from down under. It's a word that comes out of the theater. In ancient times, when you played a part, you wore the mask that represented that part. And you had to speak from down under the mask. So a person wearing a mask is a hypocrite. Jesus also, in another place, called these Pharisees whitewashed tombs. No matter how much paint you put on a tomb, it's still a place of death. Then Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is this ever a problem with us? Do we ever honor the Lord with our lips while our hearts are far from us? Think about our musical worship. How often do we simply go through the motions, mouthing beautiful words while we're thinking about dinner or the afternoon ball game or the stock market? How often do we get upset about a tune that we don't like or the tempo or the volume while we're singing the words, it's all about you, Jesus. Isaiah continues, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What an indictment. Teaching as divine truth, ideas that are merely human, just traditions. This may be as good a time as any to give you my sermon in a sentence. Here it is. Keeping the commandments of God should always take precedence over human traditions. Let me read it again. Keeping the commandments of God should always take precedence over human traditions. Well, Jesus is finished with the religious leaders, at least for now. It's time for him to apply the truth of this confrontation to the lives of those who are teachable. The Pharisees are not teachable. They have committed the unpardonable sin. We saw that back in Matthew 12. They've attributed the Miraculous power of Jesus to Satan. And they are apostates. They are bent on killing him. But there are two groups for which there is still some hope. That's the crowd and the disciples. So Jesus turns first to the crowd and offers them a universal principle. Here it is. Spiritual defilement is an internal matter, not external. I assume the crowd in verse 10 has been witnessing this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. So he uses the opportunity to teach a very important and profound truth that 
grows directly out of the confrontation. He says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. The term defile, or as translated in the NIV, to, be, to make unclean, addressed a major issue for a first century Jew. If you didn't stay clean by washing your hands or avoiding certain foods or avoiding certain people by keeping a long list of rules and regulations, you couldn't attend the temple. Your friends would shun you. Your business would decline as your clients dropped you. And your reputation would suffer severely. Please try to grasp how absolutely revolutionary Jesus' words must have sounded to people who were taught all their lives that their eternal destiny depended upon eating kosher food and eating it with ceremonially washed hands. Jesus says that what goes into your mouth does not impact your standing with him. Think about the implications of that for us today. Eating with unwashed hands may give you germs, but it can't make you ungodly. Eating saturated fats and white flour and sugar may make you obese, but it can't make you unholy. Drinking wine in moderation may damage your reputation in certain Christian circles, but it can't make you a spiritual loser. Chewing tobacco may turn your teeth yellow and make your breath stink, but it can't keep you out of heaven. Billy Sunday was actually asked that very question once. Can you chew tobacco and go to heaven? And he responded, absolutely, but you've got to go to hell to spit. <laughs> I'm not sure where he got that last part. But the point of our passage is that there may be good reasons for abstaining from certain dietary practices or keeping certain rules and regulations, even good reason to wash your hands, but all those activities are essentially irrelevant to your eternal destiny. Well, if a person isn't defiled by unwashed hands or by food and beverage that he consumes, what is it that defiles him? Jesus clearly states that it's what comes out of the mouth, the words one speaks, the attitudes he reveals, the hatred he expresses, the jealousy he shows, the racism he exhibits. These are the things that defile a person. These are the things that interfere with a right relationship with God. That's the lesson that Jesus gives to the crowd. But he reserves his most detailed and pointed applications of truth for his disciples in verses 12 to 20. He offers them three principles for godly living. First, don't go to the spiritually blind for guidance. While Jesus is talking to the crowd, the disciples come up to him and ask, this is verse 12, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I believe this is a subtle way for the disciples to say, Jesus, we've got a public relations problem here. 
You know, you really rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way when you said what you did and you called them hypocrites. Um, You think you could tone it down a bit and be a little more diplomatic? Uh, It might make life a lot easier for all of us. But Jesus doesn't back down a bit. He meant to offend the Pharisees. Self-righteous people are always offended when they are told that they cannot please God by their own efforts. In fact, Jesus goes further. He tells his disciples, Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Boy, these are stunning metaphors. Yet blind guides are exactly what the Pharisees are. What a devastating description for people who considered themselves enlightened. They offer themselves as spiritual guides to people, but they don't have the foggiest idea of where they're going, and they're going to end up in the pit, probably referring to hell. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples they are to abandon the religious establishment of Judaism and follow him, follow him alone. I believe the message for us today is if you need spiritual guidance, be careful who you go to. Don't go to the health, wealth preachers. Don't go to Dr. Phil or Oprah. Don't go to the self-help books or Scientology or talking heads on TV. Go to the Word of God. The second principle is similar to what he already communicated to the Pharisees. Because food is physical, it cannot cause spiritual or moral pollution. In verse 15, Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us. What parable? Well, the term parable sometimes refers to a pithy story, and at other times it just refers to a hard saying. Having Here, I think uh, Peter is referring to the hard saying that Jesus has made about uh, food being unable to defile a person. Having been taught all his life to stay away from non-kosher foods, he doesn't quite grasp what Jesus is saying. So Jesus explains, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Eating food is simply a matter of biological processes, intake, mastication, digestion, elimination. How can that defile a person? Mark concludes from these words that Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark 7.19 Yes, there was a time when God put dietary restrictions on His people. It was during their wilderness wanderings to keep them healthy, to distinguish them from the pagan nations around them. But with the coming of Christ, the dietary and ceremonial requirements of the law were fulfilled and no longer applicable. In fact, nothing is clearer in the New Testament than that Christians, New Testament Christians, can eat anything they want. Not always wise, but it's possible. They can do it. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul describes certain false teachers who teach people to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received by thanksgiving, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is created by the word of it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. 
The bottom line is this, friends. If you can thank God for it, you can eat it. Diet doesn't determine one's spiritual standing with God. Food doesn't defile. There is no biblical requirement to be a vegan or a vegetarian. Rather, what defiles, what turns people into spiritual wrecks, is what comes out of their mouths. The third principle is this. Spiritual defilement is due to heart disease, not failure to wash one's hands. To make sure that his disciples don't misunderstand what he means, Jesus offers a sample list of the kinds of things that defile a person. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. You notice that he here speaks of violations of the 6th commandment, the 7th, the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th in order. It's these things, all launched by evil thoughts, that make a person unclean or unspiritual. Not eating with hands that one has failed to wash ceremonially in just the right way. Well, what does God want us to take away from this passage this morning? It's so easy for us to think of hypocrites who are pursuing an external, legalistic, religious faith. We can probably even identify some religions or denominations we would characterize that way, perhaps justifiably. However, I can't help but think that God wants us to look inside to see if there are ways we are nullifying the Word of God for the sake of our traditions. Are we judging others on the basis of external issues that don't amount to a hill of beans? Are we washing our hands raw, figuratively speaking, while spewing all kinds of defilement around us? Friends, don't try to come to God with clean hands only. Come to Him and ask Him for a clean heart, which He will grant you if you repent of your sins based on the full and complete sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In a moment, we're going to gather at the Lord's table for a simple meal designed to help us remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we come to this table, we are specifically asked to examine ourselves. First, to see if we are in the faith and then to make sure we are not eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean that we have to come sinless, otherwise none of us could participate. But we come confessing our sins and ready to receive the incredible grace and mercy of our Lord. I'm reminded of an action that Pilate took just before turning Jesus over to be crucified. Do you remember what he did? He called for a basin and he washed his hands and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He was not. You cannot become innocent in the sight of God just by washing your hands. 
It only can happen through a radical change of heart that comes when the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Would you bow with me in prayer? I want us to take a moment of silent prayer as we confess our sins to the Lord and prepare our hearts for the table. Father, we are so focused today on germs and viruses. We diligently wash our hands. We put on masks. We distance ourselves from others. We get ourselves vaccinated. All to avoid illness that at worst can only kill the body. All the while, we so often ignore the virus of sin that is so much more dangerous and can actually kill the soul. Thank you, Father, for providing a solution to our sin in the blood of Jesus. We joyfully come to this simple meal to celebrate His sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for the bread that represents His body bruised and broken in our behalf. And the cup that represents His blood that He poured out on Calvary because of our sin and for our forgiveness. Help us to receive these elements with gratitude and joy. In Jesus' name, Amen.